Let's go to our scripture reading this morning for today's message from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read these five verses. They're not very long, so let's read them together from the board aloud. Beginning in verse 1. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, let every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, as you have penned these words some 800 years prior to the coming of our Lord You knew exactly what your plan was. You knew exactly what you were going to do. You knew exactly everything that was going to be accomplished. You had planned it from the foundations of the earth. You have executed it in the history of our world. And Lord, one day you are coming again to culminate your work that you have begun in us. So Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for these truths and As we begin to explain and exegete them, Lord, I pray that you will move me aside and that your spirit will speak to the hearts of your people, that ears will be open, we will have ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, a heart to obey, a will to respond, and a heart to worship you in a holy response of faith. Lord, we pray that if there's one here that does not know you as Savior, that today would be the day that you would, through your word, draw them to yourself. And Lord, if there are Christians here who have not lived in accordance with who they are in Christ, I pray today would be the day that you would bring them to repentance. Lord, I pray all of your power to go forth to do the work that is needed in each and every one of our hearts this morning. It is in your name we pray, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Again, just to kind of let you know what's going on next week for Christmas, we are going to do a traditional service. Uh, It's a liturgy referred to as carols and lessons. It's an old English tradition, and uh, there are lots of churches that still do it. Uh, They do tend to be more formal churches, but uh, I just wanted to do something a little different. Uh, something we, since we can't have our, our choir as we normally would and we miss them so much, I, I just thought it'd be nice to do something a little out of the ordinary, something a little different that maybe will be meaningful for you. So uh, we're going to do that next week. So this morning we are looking at Isaiah chapter 40, but I want to begin, uh, if you're opening your Bibles and turning in there to follow along, I actually want to begin in Mark chapter 1. This morning, Mark chapter one, if you're, if you're turning there, because of all the ways that Mark could have begun his gospel, 
of all the ways that he could have started. And, and there are many evangelicals today who believe that Mark was actually the first gospel that was written. Now, I personally don't accept that. I actually think it was Matthew. I, I go against the grain a little bit for that. But, uh, but whatever the case is, um, the way that Mark decided to introduce the gospel to us in verses uh, two and three, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, uh, some of that would have sounded familiar to you just now, but some of it aside from former sermons and formal Bible reading, perhaps it didn't sound so familiar. Mark says here that he's quoting Isaiah, but if you are a careful reader of the scripture, you will notice right away that Isaiah is not the only one that he's quoting here. And yet of all the ways that he could have begun his gospel, he, he calls our attention to the prophet Isaiah. Now, why mention Isaiah here when he's actually quoting other passages, primarily Malachi chapter three, but uh, you also notice elements of Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 in here as well. And so he's kind of bringing in three different passages and kind of merging them together. And, a lot, and yet he only says that I'm quoting from Isaiah and a lot of, obviously that's led to a lot of speculation. Why is he doing that? And you'll get some of your more skeptical people who will say that, well, it's because Mark didn't know and he was mistaken and, and all that. Obviously, they don't have a very high view of the scriptures. Uh, most of your commentators today will say that he's simply drawing attention to Isaiah because Isaiah is the major prophet and all the rest of them are kind of minor. I don't think that really qualifies for the book of Exodus, but, but that's beyond the point. So let me tell you, and I've never really read this before. I, I haven't really seen this anywhere. Let me, let me just kind of give you my opinion of why he only, he specifically mentions Isaiah here. And that is because Isaiah 40 is the primary truth that Mark wants us to understand how he is introducing his gospel. And he's bringing in the rest of these verses to kind of add flesh to the bones, you know, to kind of fill out the prophecy. That's what he's doing. So, so if you want my opinion, there, there it is. He's, he's really just kind of fleshing it out with the other passages. But the main truth that he wants us to grasp as he opens his gospel is Isaiah chapter 40. That's how he introduces the gospel to us. Now, why do I say that? Because all three of the other gospel writers quote Isaiah, the verse we just read. And I've, I've got them there on the board. You can kind of look at it. It's uh, Isaiah 40 and the significance of it. Mark, you can see Mark, uh, what we just read here, but Matthew, Luke, John, all of them quote this passage. And when you have all four gospel writers quoting to tell us something, to draw our attention to something, that should tell you that there is something very significant that they want us to understand about the life of Jesus Christ in these passages that makes it very significant. It, it frames the theological truth that they are telling us about and the theological truth that they want us to grasp as we begin to hear the story of Jesus Christ. Mark is no dummy. 
Neither are any of the other gospel writers under inspiration. They are drawing our attention to Isaiah 40 for a reason. And they want us to see what it is. And so let's uh, turn back in our Bible to Isaiah 40, where we're going to be today. And I want you to look. And if, again, if you've stu- I know many of you have been studying your Bible for a lifetime through Sunday school, through your own personal reading and such. So you know that Isaiah 40 begins the second major division of the book of Isaiah. There's a, there's a major break here in what Isaiah is doing to where before in Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, God has told these people that they're going to be put into judgment for their sin. In fact, uh, just a few verses above in in chapter 39, uh, Isaiah says definitely that you are going to be carried away to Babylon. And I love Hezekiah's response. Well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. (laughs) So, you know, at least my kids have to deal with it and not me. I've actually heard church members say very similar things before. And so uh, a very, very selfish attitude. And yet here now in chapter 40, God suddenly changes direction. He suddenly changes tone and where he has been announcing judgment, the entire nation, even on Judah, who showed incredible faith in the ministry of Hezekiah. Now their sin and continual rebellion against God had earned them judgment, but God is now going to switch gears and he's going to act in grace and restore them. If you want to put Isaiah in evangelical terms, here it is. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, God reveals their sin. In chapters 40 through 66, God reveals their Savior. If you really want to boil Isaiah down just to two basic truths, the first 39 chapters reveal their sin and their judgment. The second 27 chapters reveals their Savior. And the change in tone is sudden and dramatic. In verse one and the first part of verse two, these, these terms are, are very significant. And just to go through them one by one, he says here, comfort, comfort, all, oh my people. The, the word comfort is, this, this is a command. This is not, uh, God is not telling his people to be comforted. You may have comfort now. He's actually commanding someone to comfort his people. Now, who is that someone? We're not actually told in this chapter. We don't know who that someone is. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter because the whole point of not telling us is that the message is more important than the messenger. And so God is telling someone, commanding them to comfort his people. But, but the word comfort is a soft, very affectionate term. It's actually used speaking, it, it speaks of speaking in a soft voice with someone who is mourning. Someone who is mourning. Console them. And not just anyone. He says, comfort, oh comfort my people. Do you realize that in Isaiah 139, the primary way that God refers to Israel is this people? He actually puts distance between them and himself. He says, I will, I will uh, do these things to this people. This people has done this. This people have done that. And yet in Isaiah 40 and throughout the rest of the book, he comes back around and he says, these are my people. These are my people. Kind of reminds me when Jesus restored Peter. 
when he tells, when he tells uh, the women, go tell my disciples and Peter. Why does he single out Peter? Because Peter knew he had sinned badly. And these people, this people in Isaiah 1 through 39 knew that they had sinned badly. God had caught out their sin for 39 chapters. But now he says, comfort my people. It isn't this people anymore, it's my people. He says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem there in the Hebrew is actually the feminine form of the city's name. And you can see that in your English because as you go down, that her iniquity, her warfare that she has received, it's the feminine form. It's like God is speaking to a bride. It's like God is speaking to his beautiful bride that he is about to restore. Kind of like, um, like um, Hosea when he restores Hagar. Speak to my people, my bride, Jerusalem. And he says that term speaking kindly to her, if you want to translate it literally, it would mean speak to her heart. Speak to her heart, draw her. What does God say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if there's anything you see in Isaiah verse one, in the first part of verse two, it is the depth of God's love. The softness, the tenderness that he, that he calls his people back to him. That he's telling his messenger to comfort my people. God's people are afraid. They are mourning over their sin. They are, they are afraid to approach him because they know that to approach God in their sin is to face judgment. And God is telling his messenger, no, 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 no. No. Comfort. Comfort my people. Speak to their hearts. Draw them with my love back to me. For 39 chapters, he had been pronouncing judgment, scary images of judgment. And yet now the change is sudden and dramatic. It is unexpected. And it's very, very effective. You just see the depths of God's love here. You see his incredible love to speak comfort to his people, to speak comfort to you this morning. Maybe, maybe you've messed up this morning and you were debating whether or not to come to church because you messed up this week because you sinned that one sin again. How can God forgive me again? God is speaking comfort to you this morning. Come back. For all of you who had children, you remember when my kids were, were first learning how to walk, they would, they would get up and they would kind of wobble around on their feet and then they would fall down. And I would smack them on the head and say, and you lousy thing, why can't you walk already? No, I wouldn't do that. What would I do? I would say, get up, try again. Come on, come to daddy. Get up, try again. Come on, you can do it. Come on again, try it again. No matter how many times they fell, Right? Have you ever thought that maybe God is doing the same thing for us? That no matter how many times we sin, he's telling his children, get up, try it again. Come to me, come to daddy. Come on, you can do this. 
This is the tenderness with which God is speaking here. And this is the frame that that Mark and the other gospel writers are placing. This is the mindset that the gospel begins. The story of the advent of Christ. This, This is the heart that it begins with, drawing our attention back to Isaiah The the writers were aware of this context. They were aware of what Isaiah is doing here. And they're saying, this is the heart of God that I want you to see in the coming of Jesus Christ. Comfort. Comfort my people. By the time we get to Isaiah 40, Judah, or at least they should, be mourning over their sin. They should be mourning over their coming judgment. They should be afraid. They should be fearful. And now a God is lovingly offering comfort. And we're going to focus on verse 2 this morning because we're going to see the three sources of comfort that we have that God gives us. There's, when he, when he, you may have noticed this when we were reading that there were three phrases that began with the word that, right? And so we're going to focus on those this morning. Why, why is it that we can have such comfort when we have sinned so greatly against our God because he says three things to her. He says three things. Number one, he says that our war has ceased. In verse 40, uh, chapter 40, verse two, he says, call out to her that her warfare has ended. By the way, that term call out to her is, uh, is actually in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, it is actually the same word, euangelizo. It's, it's preach to her, give her good news, proclaim to her that number one, our war has ceased. Our warfare has ended. Now, some of your translations, especially if you're using the NIV or, or something like that, it may say something like your difficult labor or your hard labor or, or something like that. And, and that is, that's correct. That's correct. The, the idea here is, um, is the difficulty that comes in warfare. It is, it is difficulty that comes from being pressed into service. And, and many of you were living and maybe some of you even had to answer the draft. And it, it kind of has the idea like that, someone being pressed into warfare and the special difficulty that comes with that because this is not something you volunteered for. This was something you had to do, something you were expected to do. What warfare? Well, Isaiah had just prophesied in verses six and seven of Isaiah 39. He had just told Hezekiah that you are going to be carried away to Babylon. So the immediate war in mind might be Babylon and their growing threat. Israel was always under threat of invading armies. They had just, uh, they had just uh, uh, well, really, they didn't do it. God had just repealed the Assyrian army in the life of Hezekiah, an amazing deliverance. But now there's an even greater threat coming, looming on the horizon, and that is Babylon. And yet the truth is, is that Israel's continual, continual rebellion and sin against God, that was the real war. Babylon was just the instrument in God's hand. It was just the tool that God was using. Assyria was just the ax in God's hand. And Assyria, Assyria got a little big for their britches and started bragging. And God tells them, does the ax say to the wielder? Why do you do this or why do you do that? No, 
No, all of these, all of these nations that are coming against Israel are simply the axe that is in God's hand. They are just the tool, just his instrument. They had turned against God, which in turn brought God's warfare against them. They had sinned, they had rebelled. And the terrible truth is that their God had become their enemy. That's a terrible place to be. Their God had become their enemy. He is a holy and righteous God who cannot allow sin to go unpunished. See, we think God can do that. But the truth of the matter is that a holy God can never allow sin to be unpunished, allowed to sin to be undone. And this is terrible news for every unbeliever. In fact, uh, look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses uh, 8 and 9. I have 7 and 9 there, but we're just going to look at verse 8 and 9. Dealing out, this is talking about when Christ comes again. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse nine, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is terrible news that every single unbeliever that when Christ comes, they will face the punishment of their sin. God will go to war against them and they will not have a leg to stand on. John says, he who does not obey the son is under the wrath of God. This is bad news. This is terrible news. But here God is announcing good news and the good news is that he's speaking comfort to them because that warfare against God, that warfare caused by their sin, that warfare caused by their rebellion, that warfare has ended. That warfare is done. God is going to act on behalf of his people and bring our warfare to an end. Our war with God brought about by our own sin, our own rebellion will be over. It's done. Not because of anything we've done, but because God has acted on our behalf. God has acted for us. And, and, and it's so certain that look what he says. Look, look carefully. That our warfare has ended. All, all you grammar proficient people out there, what tense is that in? It's in the past tense. And yet, when Isaiah wrote this, Israel wasn't even in Babylon yet. And yet God is pronouncing that your warfare has ended. It is so certain. This promise and this work is already settled in the heart of God, so much so that he writes it in the past tense before it ever even happens. This is settled in God's heart. No more enmity with God. No more hostility with God. He's brought peace. And that's why the angels announce in Luke chapter two, verse 14, when Christ is born. That's why they announce glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And, and I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of the uh, traditional translation of that because it's not just a general platitude. It's not just a, 
Uh, it's not just a hallmark card. It's actually real that those among whom God is pleased, there is peace with God. The enmity is over. The war has finished. Not because of anything we've done, but because God has acted on our behalf. So how can God bring about this incredible peace? Because something is about to happen. We see the second, that phrase here. It says that her iniquity has been removed. We see that our war has ceased. We also see that our sin has been removed. Our sin has been removed. And this is a really interesting phrase because the term sin, the terms that are used here in in the Hebrew, there's actually only two words in this, in this phrase, it, it, we, we have to spread it out to make it make sense in English. But, but there's, actually only, there's actually only two words here. That iniquity removed. Her iniquity removed. And that iniquity that he's referring to is, recall, is recalling her guilt. It is recalling her shame. Her offenses against God that not only had offended God, but actually had incurred guilt in her heart. That until her guilt was taken care of, there could be no comfort. There could be no peace. Um, Numbers chapter 14 verse 18 has this uh, incredible truth in seed form. And uh, I can't remember if I have that on the board or not. Do I not? Okay, look in Numbers chapter 14 verse 18 or write it down to look at later. But it says here that the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Boy, isn't that great? Hallelujah. Say amen. Amen. But then right next to it, he says, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Now, wait a minute. He just said that he forgives sin and transgression, but he also says that he does not clear the guilty. And these two truths are right next to each other. And the question is, how can you possibly forgive sin if you will in no wise clear the guilty? It sets up this impossible tension that is prevalent all throughout the law. That God is a God who forgives sin, but God is also a God who is holy and just and will not clear the guilty because a God of justice and holiness could never do such a thing. How can God show loving kindness and forgive iniquity and transgression and yet by no means clear to guilty? I mean, let me ask you a question. Are you guilty? Yes. Am I guilty? Yes. I expected a bigger amen there. We're all guilty. Every sin of every human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth must be held accountable by a holy and just God. There's no way otherwise. If a holy God must punish sin, then how in the world can he remove this immovable obstacle? What happens when a God who wants to forgive must clear the way of an immovable obstacle, which is our sin? And we see that truth in seed form here that he removes it. He removes our guilt. And what is so interesting about this, the reason why I'm, I'm exploring both terms is because this word removes actually expresses the idea of acceptable. That her guilt, her iniquity is acceptable. What in the world is that talking about? It doesn't mean that God changes his mind. 
It doesn't mean that God changes his mind about what sin is and that God must punish sin. No, that, no, we are not made acceptable in the sense that God decides to accept who we are, you know, just, just because he loves us that much. That's not what it's talking about. A lot of, a lot of people today try to preach that. That God is a God of love and he would never punish, punish anyone and he's just going to accept us all like we are. And some of the more scholarly guys who, who give that idea actually get that, take that from this passage. But that's not what he's referring to. This word removed, it goes back to Leviticus 1. It goes back to the book of Leviticus. In fact, it's all over the book of Leviticus. And what is the book of Leviticus talking about? Sacrifice. And that when the burnt offering is accepted by God, that's that, this is that term. The burnt offering is made acceptable in order to provide atonement for the guilt of their sin. God accepts the sacrifice in substitution for the sinner and the sin and the guilt is removed from the person and they find forgiveness in God. Already we see the seed of substitution here. We see the seed that, that Isaiah is going to mature later on, especially, most especially in the servant songs and most especially Isaiah 53. We already see the seed here that our sin is removed. How? Because, it, because the offering that God himself gives by his own hand is rendered acceptable to remove our guilt. That's the seed of what we see here. God is going to bring us comfort by ending the hostility and the way he's going to bring peace between us and himself is through an acceptable sacrifice. That's how he's going to do it. That's how he's going to bring us comfort. And it's a theme that's going to be fully, fully explained in Isaiah 53. We see the seed form of it here, but it's going to be, but the significance is going to be drawn out throughout the servant songs. This is good news. This is great news our, that our peace and comfort, God has removed our guilt and reconciled us to himself, not by anything we do, but by the fact that God provides for himself an acceptable sacrifice. Do you remember that seed truth when Abraham took his son? Uh, I started to say Lot, but that's not right. Uh, <laughs> when Abraham took his son Isaac on the mountain and Isaac asked, dad, where is the offering? And what did Abraham say? God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And here Isaiah is taking that theology and he is telling us that that is exactly how he's gonna bring peace and comfort to us. He's going to provide for himself the acceptable sacrifice. Isn't that, isn't that great news? Well, guess what? It gets better. Can you believe that? Can you believe that it even gets better? Well, it does. See, the source of all of our comfort and peace is that God himself is our savior. And because God himself is our savior, that means that our savior is sufficient. Beloved, make no mistake. If you are not your own savior, excuse me, if you are your own savior, you are not sufficient. 
You know, I really have to appreciate the logic of those who say you can fall from salvation because, I mean, they got it right. If you complete your salvation, then it's up to you to keep it. I mean, their logic is sound. So I got to respect them there. But the fact of the matter is God himself is our savior and he is sufficient. You say, where are you getting that from? Well, not from numbers, I'm getting it from Isaiah. That third phrase that begins with the word that, it says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Notice here that he is our personal savior. We receive it from the Lord's own hand. There is no other mediator. There is no host of saints. There is no uh, Mary, mother of God that we must pray to. We receive this from the Lord's own hand, directly from him, not from some priest. There, There is no other adequate substitute. Listen, Only a human being can substitute a penalty for another human being, right? Only man can die for man, right? That's why the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin, could never cover sin. And yet, here's the problem. Our guilt is infinite and eternal because we have offended an infinite and eternal God. I used to have a 1986 Honda Accord I got it because it was a, a stick shift and it was actually my mother-in-law's and when she died, I was the only one in the family who could drive a stick shift, so, so I got the car. By the way, kids, that's a good reason to learn how to drive a stick shift, but anyway. And so, uh, so anyway, I mean, this thing, it wasn't very well taken care of. She bought it used and, and I left it in some parking lot and somebody keyed my car, right? Well, I mean, this was a 1986 Honda Accord that I got for free. I wasn't too worried about it. Let me ask you a question. What if I took a key and went to uh, some garage and, and, and got one of these? Uh, Brother Roy, help me out. What's like a classic car that's been fully restored that would be priceless? I mean, uh, you know, what, what a, a Ford F-150? Maybe, I don't know. Probably not an F-150. Uh, uh, what's that? A 56 T-Bird, okay. And I go up and this thing is beautifully restored and I walk up and I key that car. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Why? Because of the value of the car, the value of that, right? See, in the same time, if you sin against me, that's not really a big deal because I'm really a nobody, but you sin against God who is infinite and eternal, then your guilt is infinite and eternal. And the only way The only way to satisfy that guilt is whoever must be a substitute must be infinite and eternal. And that's only God. And so therefore God becomes a man. And he solves that, he solves that dilemma. He took on human flesh. God the Son came to us and died not only for our sins, but also earned God's own righteousness And you say, well, Randy, you said it gets better. What do you mean by that? Because look at that phrase. What do we receive? It says that that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's that talking about? You know, some people actually teach that what this is saying, that they were punished doubly what they deserved, that, that God was so mad at Israel that he gave them double what they deserved. 
And now he's, now that he's saying, well, you know, I've really given you a little too much. You know, I, I spanked you a little too hard, Israel. I, I grounded you from two weeks instead of, instead that I should have only grounded you for one. I'm sorry. So, so now I'm going to make amends and I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to make this all okay. Is that consistent with the character of God? No. Let me ask you this. Is that consistent with the nature of our sin? No. No, we have rebelled against a gracious and holy God. We have rebelled against a righteous God who gave us everything, who gave us life and all of that. And yet we said, we want to be king instead of you, God. That would be impossible that we would receive double what we deserve because we deserve the eternal wrath of God, the infinite wrath of God. You can't double that. It's not what it's saying at all. And, and the other problem with that is, I mean, how would that be comforting? Do you want a God who would do that? Oh, oops, I punished you a little too much. Sorry. Is that the kind of God you want? No. She received double the price of her sin. What is this talking about here? In other words, the atonement that God has given, the way, the peace and comfort through the acceptable sacrifice that God has given it is worth, it is, it is of eternal value and it is of eternal significance. So much so that even the infinite guilt that we deserve, the infinite, the infinite punishment that we deserve, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is infinitely more, double than what our sins deserve. It'd be like if you owed $5,000 on a credit card and I said, you know, you know, uh, Miss Carolyn, I, I love you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pay off your credit card. What do you owe? $5,000? Okay. But I don't give you $5,000. I give you $10,000. I give you so much more than what your debt requires, Right? And that's what Christ has done for us. He, he has given us so much more. Like the good Samaritan, when, when, the, when the Samaritan paid for the hotel room and for all the medical care of the one that he found, but then he says, let him stay as long as he wants and whatever he needs, I will come back and I will pay the difference. There, there is an infinite supply of grace that comes over and over and over again, double, infinitely more than what we need. There's an unending supply and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. She has received from his hand double in exchange, which is the literal translation, in exchange for her sins. He gives us an unending supply for our unending need. His salvation is completely sufficient for us. His salvation is everything we need. He will never let us go. And how does he accomplish this? Beginning in verse three through five. Because the Lord is going to personally come to the earth and establish his kingdom. And when the gospel writers, knowing this context, when they began their gospel story, 
they all called our attention to this passage. They all said, these are the truths. These are the theological framework that you need to understand as we begin to share the wonderful story of the coming of Jesus Christ. Comfort. Comfort my people. Because your war is over, your sin is removed, and your Savior, Jesus Christ, is sufficient for everything you need for life and godliness. That's the message of Christmas. That's the announcement heralded in Isaiah. And that is what is fulfilled in the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I say this every year and looking at the age of the kids in here, I feel pretty confident in saying this. That... um, you know, so many people are so upset about the commercialization of Christmas. I, I don't mind that so much. I mean, what other time of the year can you hear such great theological hymns over the radio, secular radio nonetheless, and such wonderful truths that come over it? But I do have one problem with it, and that is we flip the message that Christmas has become about being good. That if you are good, you get gifts. Beloved, Santa Claus is a legalist. And by the way, the real Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, he decked, he punched uh, Arius in the face for saying that. At the Council of Nicaea, it's actually pretty popular. The real St. Nick went over there and was it Arius? No, it was Pelagius. Pelagius was actually preaching that message. He was actually preaching that you must be good enough in order to have salvation. And St. Nick went over there and literally punched him in the face. He would be appalled at what we have made, Santa Claus, Santa Claus. He would be appalled at what we've made him today. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. Beloved, Santa Claus is a legalist. We have something so much better. Christmas is not about being good enough. Christmas is about the fact that you and I left to ourselves, we can never be good enough. And we have received the greatest gift that anyone can ever imagine. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So comfort my people, comfort. Speak to the heart because your war is over your sin is removed and your savior he is so sufficient father we thank you for these wonderful truths that are in seed form in Isaiah but fully expressed in the furtherance of your revelation in the New Testament even in the book of Isaiah himself Lord, I pray that we would never get the message wrong of Christmas, that it's not about us being good enough to receive gifts, Lord. It is the fact that we are not good enough. We can never be good enough in our flesh. And Lord, may we deny that that falsehood. May we fight back against that cultural idea that Satan has implanted in so many of our minds and instead uh, 
preach the truth that Christmas is because we need a Savior and, and he came. He died on the cross for our sins. He gave his life for you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, one and only, completely unique, so that we can have eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. And we pray that everyone here today knows that truth, but if not, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray that every Christian here is living in that truth, but if they are not, Lord, give them once again a renewed focus that the gospel is all about your work in us and what you have done for us. That all we can do is lift up our hands and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then from there, all we can do is fall down, lay our crowns, and cry, holy, holy, holy. Let's stand now and pray that prayer together. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus because the greatness of his love and mercy, we cry, holy, holy, holy.